Well, today, this morning and this evening, God willing and helping, I want to look at the cross of Christ, at the doctrines of the cross, of the death of Christ. And uh, we're going to look this morning at John chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15 this morning, where the Lord Jesus, he's still speaking to Nicodemus as he says these words. Uh, He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There are not a few today who, if they give any credence to the thought of faith, uh, they would say, well, it's a kind of leap in the dark. You hope for the best and you leap blindly into the dark. But our Lord Jesus Christ did not view faith, nor does the Bible view faith in that way. I hope we've seen something of that recently in our studies in Hebrews 11. Because faith has an object, it has um, reasons. And one of the great themes of John's Gospel, particularly in chapter 5, but it's there throughout the Gospel, is the theme of witness to the truth. Uh, Our Lord Jesus was constantly appealing to witnesses to establish the validity of his Messiahship. Uh, So, for example, in verse 11, he makes a a passing reference to the attitude of the Pharisees. He says, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye, that is the group that Nicodemus is representative of, the Pharisees, Ye receive not our witness. And here in John chapter 3, as in many of the other chapters in this gospel, there are several references to those who witness to Christ's Messiahship. Firstly, of course, there is the Lord Jesus himself. That's the verse I've just read to you. We speak what we've seen, what we know, and we testify what we've seen. Jesus himself bears witness to the truth. Uh, Of course, it's quite legitimate to bear witness to something yourself, but it doesn't establish it. It's only in the mouth of two or three witnesses that something is established. But to bear witness yourself, of course, is entirely right. But Christ doesn't leave it there. In verse 11, he uses the word we, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. Who is he referring to here? Well, almost certainly to John the Baptist uh, in his testimony to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And almost certainly he's speaking of the Old Testament prophets. The scriptures bear witness to him. And then there is a third witness mentioned in verses 16 and 17. That's the Father, God the Father himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. So we have at least three witnesses mentioned here. But then, of course, there is another witness, and this would really have made Nicodemus sit up and think, as they say. This would have really made him take notice. Who is this? Well, Jesus cites Moses. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why would Nicodemus take special notice here? Well, because Jesus is moving into the ground that Nicodemus would claim. Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would claim to be an expert on Moses. The Jewish leaders of this time uh, had much to say about Moses and the law of Moses. And it's as though Jesus is saying, well, do you want another witness to come into this commission of inquiry as to whether or not I am the Messiah? Well, here is another witness, the very one whom you give great, uh, great affirmation to, the very one who you claim to be an expert interpreter of. Moses, already Jesus has said several things in this passage that would jolt and unsettle Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and do you not know these things? Uh, And here is another, Moses, and he would be forced to think and think again. And you know, sometimes this is how the Spirit of God deals with us, particularly if we are settled in our own ideas, to use a King James Version expression, if we are wise in our own conceits, God brings something that jolts us and unsettles us. Uh, Perhaps the pandemic is doing that for some people. He deals with us by making us think again. And here Jesus is saying, think again about Moses and think again about this particular incident that Numbers 21 refers to and we just will be looking at that passage now in some detail as well as these verses in John chapter 3 if you have a bible you may just want to turn back to numbers 21 think again he says as to what happened in the wilderness wanderings the people of Israel there with Moses as they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea as they went round a very long roundabout way to get round the land of Edom. Think again what it says about the soul of the people being grieved or discouraged or disheartened because of the way. And realize firstly that here is a testimony to what I have been talking about, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's a testimony here to human sinfulness, the reality of human sinfulness. You cannot read a passage like Numbers 21 without being faced with that. The people spake against God and against Moses. This isn't the only time. Uh, In chapter 20, uh, when they were short of water, uh, they complained to Moses and they used some very stupid words would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord and you brought us up here into this wilderness to die and our cattle they were always complaining nothing that God could do was right in their eyes it really stretched right back to the confrontation that Moses had with Pharaoh And you remember Pharaoh's reaction was to dig in his heels and to cause the people to make bricks without straw. They had to gather the straw for themselves. He didn't supply the straw. 
And remember, the reaction of the people was not, well, God will bring us through this. The God you've talked about is meeting with you at the burning bush. Their reaction was to complain and, and to moan. And it goes on and on. Uh, and right through to their exodus out of Egypt as they run away from or they escape from the Egyptian armies. There's a note of desperation in the way that they cry to Moses about these pursuing Egyptians. So Moses has to say, well, stand still and see the salvation of God. And God delivers them. And then when Moses is in the Mount of Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, they worship the golden idol. They complained about the leadership of Moses. They complained about his wife even. Uh, In Numbers 20, they complained that there is no water. In Numbers 21, they're complaining about the manna, the light bread as they call it, or this worthless bread. It's an appalling complaint. It's a frightening complaint because the manna, as we know from the Gospels, John chapter 6, was a picture of Christ. It was a type of Christ, and yet they complained against that. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look, you're an expert on Moses. Moses, what does he tell us? He tells us that even Israelites, even the people of God who have departed out of Egypt with a high hand and a stretched out arm, the people of God who have uh, defeated Pharaoh and his horsemen there at the Red Sea, the people of God who've known that redemption, they had sin in them. Even they had sin. Does your knowledge of Moses extend to that? And you see, Jesus is here really giving us an insight into what the Bible calls the natural man. The natural man. Paul uses that expression quite a bit in his letters. For example, in Romans and chapter 8, he speaks of that mindset. Uh, verse 5 and 6. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. But to, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There you have this, a, a similar phrase, it's interchangeable really, the fleshly mind, the natural mind. Or, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is is how people are. This is how people are without Christ, even in a world in which Christ has come and achieved a great exodus from sin and from the bondage of Satan. Even in such a world, people say, what's this about the Bible? What's this about heaven and hell? This, this, all this stuff about Christ, all this wasting your time over the Bible and prayer. It's light bread, it's worthless bread. It's the same mindset as Esau in Genesis 25, who for a morsel of meat, we're told, for a square meal, yes, 
But just for that, he sold his birthright. I'm about to die of hunger, he says. He's only conscious of his physical appetites, of his lusts and of his attitudes to do with the things of this world. He's only conscious of that. He wants to satisfy that. And this birthright, it's worthless. It's a nothing. And as we live in a society where all manner of surprising sins are increasingly being accepted as normal, we have evidence to the reality of human sinfulness. I wonder if you've realized that this is a reality for you personally, for each of us. It's not just something out there, not just something in society or in the particular band leaders, as it were, of these uh, these movements to overturn uh, the Bible and its precepts, but it's something that's there in every person without Christ. Human sinfulness. And then, secondly, Numbers 21 bears testimony. Exodus, uh, sorry, Moses bears testimony to the reality of divine judgment. The reality of divine judgment. Our soul loatheth this light bread. What did God do? He sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. It's not known exactly what kind of snake he caused to invade the camp. There were obviously a very large number of them. Some would speculate that it was a small snake snake and this phrase fiery serpent could have reference to the color of the skin of the snake Uh, it certainly had reference to its venom it was an exceedingly toxic venom and there were very large numbers of these snakes wherever you turned whether you were in your tent or whether you were walking between the tents or even if you were walking towards the tabernacle These things were all over the place. You just couldn't avoid getting bitten. It was the reality of divine judgment. And the bite was painful and the bite was toxic. It was a burning effect upon the body. It's a picture to us, of course, of the effects of sin in the world. Adam and Eve, they sinned. They listened to another snake. And they sinned and they ate the forbidden fruit. And what happened? They died. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. It was as though they had been bitten by a snake. And death came into the world and to the whole human race because of Adam and Eve's sin, our first parents. A painful, toxic event, the judgment of God. The reality of divine judgment. And you know, there are many people today, sadly, we grieve, we sympathize, but many people in recent weeks and months have gone to cemeteries, they've gone to crematoriums, and they've been pronounced dead for all kinds of reasons. But in fact, the real reason is not medical, it's spiritual. The wages of sin is death. And in this general sense, I'm not making any point specifically about specific people and specific deaths. I'm not making that point. I'm saying in a general sense, 
the judgment of God is upon this world. It's a fallen world. It's a world full of sinners, populated by sinners. It's a grumbling, complaining, rebellious world. Which son of Adam has not sinned? Which son of Adam has not been stung by the scorpion sin, to quote Charles Wesley in one of his hymns? Which son of Adam, can it not be said of them, that which is born of the flesh is flesh? This is how we come in our carnal nature into this world, not needing to be taught how to sin because we all sin from our birth onwards. And there is the reality of judgment. Physical death is just the tip of the iceberg. It's what follows after death, which is so appalling, in the hands of an angry God, justly angry against our sins. Well, Moses witnessed to one more thing. Christ was leading up to this in his reference to Moses. He witnessed to the reality of God's grace. Much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. It was a remarkable remedy. It wasn't one that Moses thought of. It's not Moses' solution. Moses is witnessing, as it were, to this solution as he writes the book of Numbers. And as he writes what happens, he, he records that God told him to do it this way. A brass snake, the very thing that had bitten them, on a pole. Nobody would have thought of a solution like that. It was God's solution. And it's in the light of what Jesus says in John chapter 3 that we realize this solution points directly to the death of Christ that was to be accomplished on the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's an expression that Jesus uses again of himself. More than once, actually. In John chapter 12, for example, he says, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He too was going to be lifted up on a pole, on, a, on wood, on a tree, on a cross. And this is the reality of God's grace that in this provision, in this surprising provision, there is going to be healing and forgiveness for the people. Everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. God's undeserved mercy. They hadn't done anything to deserve this. It, just, it's, it was just given to them. He didn't give them what they deserved any longer. But he gave them now what they did not deserve. They lived as soon as they looked 
at that brass snake. And this, of course, is a wonderful type of the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. And we need to notice that firstly, this remedy was something entirely outside of themselves. Oh, that's, that cuts across uh, what people want to do, isn't it? It's all about me and what I want and what I think and who I am. That's how society works today, isn't it? All me. And God says, the only thing you're bringing into this is your sin, your depravity, and the judgment of God that is upon you. You need to look to something outside yourself. I'm not now pointing you to your own resources. I'm not now pointing you to your own medical resources, whatever they might have been in these early days. I'm not even looking to you now to do something religiously different, something religiously better that you can provide for yourself. I'm asking you now, he says, I'm telling you now that the solution is outside of yourself, it's physically away from you, it's lifted up from the earth. You've got to look away from yourself and away from your solutions and you must look to this serpent on a pole. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You must look away to Christ to be healed from your sin and from divine judgment. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ says, I'm not asking you to mix in your good deeds with what Christ has done. I'm not saying, well, Jesus has done his best and there he is on the cross and bring something of yourself to, to help it all along. No, the solution is entirely outside of you. You're just a dying sinner with venom in your veins. You're just someone in whom there is no good thing, just the flesh. Martin Luther discovered this in the days of the Reformation as he took issue with the teaching of the official church of his day. The, the teaching of the official church was this. The better ones amongst them recognized the centrality of what Christ had done, but they weren't very clear that we don't bring anything to that, to add to that in order to be accepted by God. But Martin Luther saw straight to it. He says the faith which justifies is not the faith which includes charity, but the faith which lays hold on Christ. That's worth remembering is that statement. The faith which justifies is not the faith which includes charity, and he's using the word there for love, it's not the faith which includes charity, but the faith which lays hold on Christ. The solution is outside of yourself. It's outside of your religion. It's outside of your good works and anything you care or want to do for God. It's outside of that. It's in Christ. Notice, secondly, it was a very humbling solution. Why? Because they had to look at a brass image of the very thing that reminded them of their judgment and of their sin. Because they couldn't say, well, we're going to sweep sin under the carpet. God is love and therefore he, he'll accept me as I am. No. God says, I am love. 
But now you need to see what your sin has done to the Son of God. You need to see him whose visage was more marred than any man. You need to see him who was pierced and wounded for our transgressions. You need to see the Son of God in your place, taking your place, dying for you. It's a real punishment for the Son of God because it's a real sin that you have committed and it's very humbling, of course. And that's why many people don't want to be faced with the message. But we have to be faced with the message if we're going to be saved. Thirdly, notice it's a simple solution. It is simple in one sense. It's very simple. Nothing easier than looking to that snake lifted up. Nothing easier than just lifting their head and with their eyes looking at this brass snake. They didn't have to go to it. They didn't have to have a pilgrimage to the pole. They could look at wherever they could get a sight of it. They might have been hundreds of meters away. But wherever they could get sight of this thing, just a look. Again, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's extremely simple, isn't it? A look of faith is all that is required of you to look to Christ, to look away from your sin and to look to Christ. Those of you who know the story of C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, will know that this was the start of his spiritual life when as a 17 year old he turned into a primitive Methodist chapel because of the snowstorm and there was a very uh, moderate preacher we say in the pulpit because the normal preacher couldn't come because of the weather and this man after 10 minutes or so Spurgeon says he was at the end of his tether he couldn't think what to say more as he preached on the text Isaiah 45 22 Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he began to shout as the primitive Methodists did. Look unto, look, look, look. And then he notices Spurgeon in the congregation looking miserable. And he says, young man, you look miserable. But here's the answer to that. If you look, you will live. And Spurgeon says it was a blow well struck. And he did look. And he looked again, and he lived. And he said, primitive Methodist chapels are good places to be saved in, but not good places to receive gospel teaching, good teaching. <laughs> that, was, that was Spurgeon for you. But when you consider the thousands that were baptized in the Metropolitan Tabernacle through his ministry, you realize the importance, the the vitality of this text, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Thirdly, it's universal. This grace of God is universal because it says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It doesn't say whoever is alive, whoever is a living human being, That is universalism, and that is a a great heresy, which the Bible utterly denies, even though some churches today proclaim such a thing. No, it's whoever believes in him shall not perish. 
And in that sense, it's universal, it's free, it's it's indiscriminate. It's for the worst sinners, as well as those who think they're not such bad sinners, but they're still sinners. It's for those who are under the worst judgments of God, as well as those who think life is pretty good for them. It's heading for those who are going down to the worst, the lowest depths of hell, as well as those who may be higher up in hell, as it were, but it's all hell. Because it's a universal remedy. It's very humbling, isn't it, to think that you can only be saved in the same way that the worst sinner who's done the worst things, who's heading for the worst hell, is to be saved. It's the same way for everybody. One name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It's a great leveler is the gospel. It doesn't level us up, it levels us down. Next, fifthly, it's highly effective. It's highly effective that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice there are two phrases, should not perish, but should have eternal life. Both are true. It's not just a case of recovery. When you look to Christ, that you're forgiven your sins, that's wonderful, of course, Forgiveness of our sins through the blood of the cross, that's wonderful. But also should have everlasting life, a different kind of life. Life which is fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Life which is just the beginning of what will in the next world become eternal bliss. It is an anticipation It is the seal of the Spirit or the anticipation of the Spirit which prepares you for the life of the world to come. It's life which goes on and on, growing until the perfect day. This instantaneous, this final cure of the snake bite, of the venom of sin and the wrath of God. And then finally we need to notice this remedy is the product of God's love. God bore with the people there in (coughs) the days of Moses. It was God who thought of the solution. It was God who gave them the solution. It was God, in fact, who united this solution with the solution for the sins of the whole world because it was all pointing to Christ. It's the product of God's love. Notice what it says in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice it's not the cause of God's love. God doesn't love us because his son died on the cross. That's a, a very subtle heresy, is that? And it is a heresy that's out there. The son has to somehow plead with the father to do something for sinners, Uh, And the only way he can twist the father's arm is to go and die on a cross and to suffer in that way. And at last the father relents. No, no. The father loves the world. The father loves this wicked, sinful world so much that he's even willing to give his only begotten son to the death of the cross. The cross is just the outflowing of that fountain of God, who is love. 
You see the reality of God's grace to you, my dear friend, that there is here a remedy for your sin, that you can look to Jesus and be saved, that just a look of faith, it's as simple and as clear as that, just a look of faith to him who died for sinners upon the cross, and you can be saved. Instantaneous, final cure. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray that that may be true for every one of us as we hear these precious things again.